as we gather together around your word, the, desi- the desire of your disciples is to, to see your glory. I think each one of us in here would agree and confess that if we caught a glimpse of your glory as your word goes out, as it magnifies you, draws our heart to you, each one of us would be able to go home tonight happy and satisfied. And so I pray that that is what you do for us tonight, Lord. We have this confession that we're holding on to, that we believe in wholeheartedly, for you've made us believe. There is nowhere else to go. We have arrived when we've arrived at Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that you would again um, help us to understand the depth of the satisfaction and the contentment that comes in knowing you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again, Brittany, Christine, for accommodating my request today on short notice. Um, We're going to finish out John chapter 6. We'll be in verses 60 through 71, so if you want to turn there, you can. Um, What we see tonight as we we draw chapter 6 to a close is that people divide over the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, he is the ultimate um, dividing factor when it comes for all of mankind. I mean, there, you know, there are things that people in life will divide over, lots of things that people you know, will choose. Uh, we, we, we're we're going to agree to disagree, or we, just, we don't agree to disagree, we just disagree, but we're going our separate ways. There's a lot of stuff like that. None of those things compare in... I think, importance to um, what it is to divide over Christ. To divide over Christ is to divide over that which is, if you divide in one direction, you have life. If you divide in the other direction, you have death. That's it. And all of mankind, it finds themselves in one of those two categories. That's true for everybody, spiritually. Um, and what we see tonight in our text is Christ being that dividing factor, that dividing line. We saw last week um, that some people come, will come to him and feed on Christ. Those who come to feed on him live. They abide and they are assured of their abiding and their life in him. Those who truly feed on him remain in him because he keeps them. Um, but there are those, as we will see tonight, that don't truly feed. They don't truly abide. And so they leave. And Jesus becomes this focal point, and, to, and everybody falls into one of two categories. Either you are um, in the category of those who depart, or you are in the category of those who devote. That's it. Either you depart from Christ or you're devoted to Christ. And even those who are devoted to Christ, we don't even do that well or perfectly sometimes. But we do have this confession that we believe, not because, um, well, not for any other reason than because God has brought us and called us, helped us to believe in him. And so that's what we want to see tonight, these two groups 
um, who divide over Christ, the departed and the devoted. So John chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 60. We'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 71. And then I just want us to look at these two, these two camps. John chapter 6, beginning in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, talking about what it is that he had said before, right? You have to come and feed on my flesh, drink my blood in order to abide in me, to have life. And he uses this, this um, metaphorical, hyperbolic language of what it means to be a partaker and to have union with him. It is, is, it is, is as if you consume him, you eat him, you drink him. So when many of the, his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is the devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is, um, if you have been here on Wednesday nights, you've hopefully been tracking along through John chapter 6. And I think one of the things that's important to notice right away is how those who in our passage tonight are outwardly looked like disciples are referred to as disciples, but they're disciples only in name, not truly, because their departing shows that they are not truly his disciples. You see this in verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, calling them disciples because they showed themselves to some degree outwardly to be followers and disciples of his, but not true disciples, not people who truly fed on him. They did not truly abide in him. They did not truly partake of him. Outwardly, yes, they were, but we see what drives them away. Jesus begins to press hard truths, and and what does the, the false disciple do? This is hard. I don't, I don't really care for this. I don't like this. I think I'm going to go elsewhere. And it, we really see this contrast. Peter, on the other hand, the 12, he asks them, do you want to go too? And the true disciple says, doesn't deny that there are hard and difficult truths, but at the end of the day he goes, I ain't got nowhere else to go. If I don't like it and it's hard, that's something I'm going to have to work through. I'm going to have to deal with that. But I I tell you this one thing, I'm not going anywhere. Because I know, I've become convinced, there ain't nowhere to go, nowhere else to go to where I can find life. I've come to know and believe it's, it's you. 
and it's you alone. And in this way, we see um, a fulfillment of what Jesus has been talking about the whole time. Those who come to me are drawn by my Father. How is Peter able to make that confession? The Father has drawn him. And because of that, he feeds. He abides, and he has life. He has assurance. Notice what the, de, the, the departed, our first point, the departed we see spoken of in verses 60 through 66, what their response is. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Not like, oh, who can believe it? Who can do it? I can't even, I can't even listen to this. It's so hard. This is what the words, this is what Jesus does. He speaks truth. Some truths are hard and difficult to grasp, to digest, to embrace. We've been, we've been learning about a lot of those in Romans 9. But the disciple says, but where else am I going to go? They, the, the departed, they see that they're, in the mind of the departed, there is genuinely somewhere else that they can go. That's why they go. If they were convinced that there was nowhere else to go, they wouldn't be going. But they genuinely think that Jesus, he's, he's just one option of many. And so they leave. This option is too difficult. I don't like this. I'm going to go somewhere else. I do this all the time when I go to the gym. I'm like, that exercise looks too hard. I don't want to do that. I'm going to do something else. It's too difficult. But with this, this is, the stakes are much greater. The, the departed can't even listen. And so verse 61 says, Jesus knowing in himself. Um, this phrase, knowing in himself, it just doesn't really do justice to what is being communicated. It's, it's more like Jesus, the all-knowing knower of all things, always, all the time. Um, he doesn't just know in and of himself because he's like looked down the corridor of time and seen what's going to happen. He knows in himself because um, he, his omnipresence tells us he's already always there. Take these, two, take these two things and just, for example, put them together. Jesus is omniscient. He knows all things. That's clear from the text. But he's also omnipresent and that he is all, he's everywhere all the time. Think about um, if you don't know something, what do you do? You Google it, watch a YouTube video, um, talk to somebody who you think is informed on that issue, take a class, you, you, know, you do something. If, you don't, if there's something you don't know, you personally go and you get involved and, have you, and experientially you learn. But your learning requires you to be there present. Well, Jesus, if he's present everywhere all the time, then he knows everything all the time, not just intellectually, but experientially. There, there's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no progression in God, in Jesus. He knows all things. That's why the, the church fathers would say Jesus, God is, is pure actuality. There, there's no progress in him. He doesn't learn anything. He doesn't change at all. He's, he's immutable, right? He's unchanging. And so his knowing, his all-knowing, everything is because he's already there doing it, working it, and making things come about as he wants them to come about. 
So when he created the world, at that moment in our time and space, he was also already present when those who were going to depart were departing, and Peter's confession, he was confessing. He's omnipresent, and he's eternal. So he's been eternally present, all-knowing, all the time. So if I've completely confused you, good, because God is um, hard at times to grasp in that way. But Jesus himself is the all-knowing knower. And his disciples were grumbling, not the true disciples. Again, these people are more like the disciples, the, the, the nation of Israel from the Old Testament. Those who grumbled. It's incredible. When you read through, read, go back and read Exodus chapter 15 and the song of Moses. And it's this beautiful song of deliverance and redemption, salvation. Do you know what happens in chapter 16? Grumbling. They, from one chapter to the next, worship and praise. Oh, God, you're so good. We love you. You delivered us. You're everything. You're faithful. We love you. You're wonderful. Next chapter. Oh, why did you do this? Why did you bring us into the wilderness? We hate this. Did you bring us out here to kill us? I mean, it's so relatable, right? Like, don't you experience that sometimes on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning? You're here and you're singing. Oh, God is so good. Thank you for all that you've done in Christ. And then you get out of the parking lot and you're like, this parking lot's packed. It takes me forever to get out of here. Blah, 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 blah. And you're grumbling. Like, worship one moment, grumbling the next moment. We're so much like these people. But these people are marked by grumbling. They're not content. They're not satisfied. They think that they deserve more and better than they have. Think about what they're saying. This saying is hard. Who can listen to it? I deserve something that's easier to digest. This Jesus guy is not being who I thought he was going to be. I'm out of here. They're grumbling and complaining about how hard he is. They're like the, much more like the nation of Israel in the wilderness than they know. And really, grumbling marks the life of the non believer. Um, though we do view grumbling as one of those more respectable sins, it is something that if you're prone to grumbling or complaining, it needs to be confessed to the Lord for being what it is. It, it, it's an accusation, every, grumbling and complaining is an accusation against God that you deserve better than what he's given to you and you're not happy with he's allo- what, what he's allotted you in life. I deserve better. That is some, that's some pretty, pretty serious charges to bring against God. So addressing the grumblers, the departed, he asked them a question in verse 61. Do you take offense at this? He was grumbling, or excuse me, they were grumbling, and he asked them a question. Do you take offense at this? Does this bother you, what I'm saying? Are you offended by my words? What if you, and his his follow-up is, then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Refers to himself as the Son of Man, right? This mighty, this mighty authoritative kingly figure from Daniel 7. It's one of his favorite self-designations. Jesus is the son of man. 
It, it, it speaks to his power, his dominion, his authority, all these wonderful things. What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Because he said throughout the chapter that he is the one that has come down, right? Verse 33, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Again in verse 38, for I have come down from heaven. What if you were, you've, I've come down. What if you were to see me go back up? Would you still be offended? Would my words still bother you? Is that what it's going to take? Do you need to see some awesome miracle? What if I just ascended up to from where I was before and I went back to the Father right now in your midst? Would you, would, would you still leave? Would you still be offended? You're so offended at my words, you can't even listen to them anymore and you're going to go away. What if you saw me go back to where I was before? What if you saw me in my glory? Would you still be offended? Would you still want to leave? You know what the answer is? Yes, they would. Why? Verse 63, because it's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. What is necessary to not depart from the words of Christ is a working of the Spirit of God. People want signs and wonders and miracles I'm telling you what, false prophets, false signs, false miracles, false wonders, they've been happening all, all throughout the church age and before that to, to deceive people who are looking for those types of things. It's the Spirit of God that brings salvation. The flesh, your, your sight, the flesh here not, understand, not understood in terms of works, but in terms of what, what do you think that you have to experience? What sensation must you have that you think is going to help you understand my words and accept my words and embrace my words? Do you have to see me ascending? What if you hear the voice, an angelic voice? What if you have this tingling feeling all over your body? Is that what it's going to take? Those are not signs of salvation. The sign of salvation is the, is the presence of the Spirit of God living within someone. He, Paul would say in Romans 8 9, those who do not have the Spirit of Christ do not belong to Christ. How do you know you're saved? You've got the Holy Spirit living within you. The flesh doesn't do anything at all to help in that way. If they, they could have seen him ascend they already saw other miracles. They just saw him take five loaves of bread and two fish and distribute them to thousands of people. And then what did they say? Oh, what sign are you going to do that we might believe in you? Even if they saw him ascend, they wouldn't believe. Because salvation comes by the Spirit of God regenerating someone's heart. The flesh is no help at all. And he says, my words are spirit and life. The spirit must work. We've seen that the father must draw. And the spirit works and the father draws through the words and the work of Jesus Christ. The all-knower knowing, the all-knowing knower, then says in 64 and 65, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who were um, those who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. 
And it appears from verse 64 that Jesus looks down the corridor of time and knows who's going to believe, who's not going to believe. And so that's why he says, this is how I know. But verse 65 cuts that argument at its feet. And he said, this is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He doesn't look down the corridor of time and know who's going to choose. He knows who the Father is giving to him because, he's all, because he is the all-knowing knower and is always present in all that God does. He knows who the Father is giving to him and those who are not being given to him. And he knows those who are going to depart. And so we see in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. There are the departed. Then there are the devoted. Verse 67 through 71. The breaking point was in verse 66 for many of them. And we know um, 1 John 2, 19, right? John would go on to write several other books. And one of them is the book of 1 John. And he says in 1 John 2, 19, as he describes those who fall away, those who do not continue to follow, those who depart, they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Those who depart were never in to begin with. Not truly. Maybe outwardly for a while, but not truly. The devoted, on the other hand, Jesus has a question for them. So he asks a question to the, de- to the departed. Verse 61, are you, 61, are you offended at this? And then he asks a question to the devoted. Verse 67, so Jesus says to the 12, you can imagine there's this huge crowd, right? And where are they? Verse 59, Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. He's in the synagogue. He's in his house teaching his word authoritatively. And you can imagine that what happens when you're in a packed room and those who decide, this is too hard, I'm out of here, and the people are filing out. One by one, one gets up, another gets up. Pretty soon, lots of them are getting up and they're leaving. They're departing and Jesus looks at his 12. How about you guys? You gonna go too? Peter. Gotta love Peter. Lord. Lord. To whom? Not where. It's not where else am I going to go. To whom? Who else? We've arrived not at a system, not at a building, not at a, a, a ceremony. We've come to a person. Salvation is bound up in a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Whom else is going to give us what you are giving us? And his confession is not just one of life. It's everything that's been talked about. His confession is one. I can't, there's nowhere else for me to go for life. There's nowhere else for me to go to abide. There's nowhere else for me to go to find assurance. I mean, you're all, all of those things, they're found in you and, and you alone. That's it. I, I don't have anywhere else to go. I, don't, I can't go to, nobody else can offer me, can give me what you alone can give me. You have the words of eternal life. Your very words are life. The word 
is life. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Romans 10 tells us, right? Every time you read your Bible, you're hearing the voice of Christ. He's speaking. And he intends for his people to read and to hear and to have life. And this is because this is what he says, right, in 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed. What has Jesus been saying the whole time is required to have life? Believe in me. He, he said back in John chapter 5, verse 24, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He said in John chapter 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Right? And this is, this is born again out of the passage um, that we first talked about when we opened up the book of John. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Verse 31 says this, But these are written, talking about the signs, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He's, he's using this term. Whatever you're saying must take place in, order, in my life in order for me to be saved. That's what's happening. And it's belief. This is what Jesus has said the whole time. I mean, faith. Justification by faith is the most wonderful news there is. You receive Christ and all of the gifts and the blessings in Christ in their fullness simply because you believe that Jesus is the Christ. You've done nothing. And you have everything because of him. Belief, faith, we have believed and have come to know. I know it. I just don't know it in my mind. This is not intellectual information. I know it here. My life is staked upon it. There's nowhere else I can go. Gee, it's, Peter knows he's going in. All of his chips are on the table. And this is, this is what the Christian life is like. To have life in Christ and to, 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 to have your heart rendered unto him in love and gratitude and worship to him. With a desire to live rightly for him. But guess what? When you don't, because you don't, it doesn't nullify the grace of God to you in Christ. You abide. His confession is, I've come to know and believe that I have life. I come to know and believe that in you I will abide. I've come to know and believe that in you I am assured of life. Christ is the object of his faith. And that is why he believes and is saved. That's why he has this confession of him. Fulfilling what we saw in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Peter proves himself and shows himself to be one who has been drawn by the Father. He, there's a similar confession in, John, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 16. And this, carries, this, this, this ties into to our passage in John. Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? 
In his response, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. How do people make that confession that he's the Christ, that there's nowhere else to go other than to him for life, but, it, but by God, who opens up their mind, their eyes, their hearts, to see. And that's what Jesus says in John, back in John chapter 6, verse 70. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? How, how do you have that confession? I chose you. And yet, one of you is the devil. It's interesting, right, that some people on the difficult teachings of Jesus depart immediately. And there are others that will depart eventually, but they're, they're able to hang on and hang out for a little bit. Jesus knows, though, who are truly departed and those who are devoted to him. And it reminds us and it shows us, even Judas, all men play the God-ordained role of redemption in his plan and in his economy. There is not one person that escapes what he is, what he is purposed for them in his plan of redemption. Judas was chosen, one of the 12, and yet Jesus wasn't surprised that he was going to be betrayed by him, that he was going to sin against him. Jesus chose him to be one of the 12, knowing that he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, would betray him. He chose him to be one of the 12, and that he would betray him. I think about a couple things as we wrap this up tonight. Um, think of what it is to come to him. You think of Peter's confession here. And yet, if you know any, you know, more of the Bible, you know that um, while Peter makes this wonderful statement, he also commits egregious sin. And you think about all of us. All of us have this confession that there's nowhere else to go other than to Christ for eternal life, and yet our lives are filled with weakness and unfaithfulness to him. And yet, that did not prevent him from pouring his grace out upon you through his son. He didn't save you because he knew you were going to be this upstanding, good, moral example for the world to say of what it is to be a Christian. He saved you and me and set his favor upon us simply because he chose you. And, and that giving of that grace is, is irrevocable. Think of what it is that, that we come to and what we have. And what this confession really is for us. It's also an encouragement to trust in him. As you've come to him for salvation and eternal life, do you continue to come to him for all things? Do you trust him in every area of life? No, we don't. That's why we do studies on anxiety. That's why we struggle with respectable sins, right? 
the, the goal, though, the, 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 the desire, the life of the believer is I want to live a life that's consistent with my confession. I've come to you and I believed in you and trusted in you for eternal life. Can I not believe and trust in you to, for all things? Everything else? Of course we can, but we don't at times. The life of the believer is the, the constant practice and coming to him to learn to trust in him. And that comes with the challenge of being devoted. Where do you tend to depart? What areas and struggles of your life, when faced with difficulty, do you withdraw and depart from him rather than go to him and press into him and trust him and for his provision? And, and what, you know what trust looks like? Obedience. Obedience and trust are intimately wound together. I trust you, Lord, so I'm going to obey you. Every fiber in my being is saying, don't trust, don't obey, but I know better. And I look to Christ because I see him as one who has always been trustworthy. I pray that uh, this has been encouraging for us and um, helpful for us to continue to grow in our walk with Christ as we continue to trust um, in him and live a life that's consistent with the confession that we've had as those who are devoted to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for tonight. And um, again, trusting in you to, to do the work in our lives that you know needs to be done. But we know that you're doing it as well. And so we take great comfort in that. We're encouraged by your word as we look to you. We know that we have life and that, Lord, it, it helps us. It, it, it gives comfort and ease and peace. I pray, Lord, that, that that truth, that reality continues to grow and saturate our, our living, our doing, our thinking so that um, as those who are devoted to you, we might live a life that's honoring and glorifying to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you please stand and we'll, we'll close our night with uh, one last song together.